0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. We're back with another episode of The Stacks, and I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Today, our guest is James Sexton, divorce attorney and author of If You're in My Office, It's Already Too Late, A Divorce Lawyer's Guide to Staying Together. Today we talk about how not to be married and James's wide ranging taste in books. But before we get there, let me remind you about Patreon. That's an amazing website that allows you to help support the work we do on the stacks for as little as a dollar a month and earn perks like our virtual book club, inside insight into guests and helping us pick our book club picks. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. And if a monthly contribution isn't really your thing, consider one-time contributions at paypal.me slash thestackspod. If you love The Stacks and want to stay connected, make sure you're following us on social media at thestackspod on Instagram and at thestackspod underscore on Twitter. You can find links to all our other accounts on our show notes, along with links to everything we talk about today. If you're planning on shopping on Amazon, click the links in our show notes before you shop. We'll earn a small commission and you'll get to know that your purchase helped an independent podcast. I know I ask you every week and it's because it's super important, but if you haven't yet, please take a moment to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Also go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. I cannot tell you how much this helps the show. Our most recent review comes from Olskat who says, The Stacks is a podcast not just about books, but about relationships, social justice issues, families, and so, so much more. I love the format and I love being a part of the Patreon Stacks Pack. The two books discussed each month have become a core of my monthly TBRs. Can't wait to see what's on tap for the future. Kate, thank you so much for that review and for being part of the Stacks Pack. If you want to be like Kate, go rate and review the show and consider contributing at patreon.com slash thestacks. All right, now it's time for you all to meet my guest, James Sexton. All right, everybody. Our guest today is the author of If You're In My Office, It's Already Too Late, James Sexton. James is a trial lawyer with over two decades of experience negotiating and litigating high conflict divorces. I'm going to call him James for the rest of the time because he told me I could. So J- I mean, I'm going to call him Jim, Jim. Welcome to the sex.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: All right, that was kind of your professional bio. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe where you're from. Sure. Maybe whatever you feel like is appropriate.
1: Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, 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 it's great to be here. Um, I, I am. Uh, I'm originally. I was born in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and I moved to a suburb uh, just outside of New York City when uh, I was fairly young. Um, and I went to uh, Ramapo College of New Jersey, which was a small uh, college in New Jersey. I, I was broke and it was the school that I could afford going to. <laughs> I, I was a waiter and I, I worked as a waiter paying my way through school. And then I went to NYU for my master's degree and then uh, worked on my PhD at NYU and taught there for a number of years and then decided to go to law school. And I went to law school at Fordham Law School, uh, the Lincoln Center campus. So I kind of made my way from downtown to uptown. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I live uh, now. I, I divide my time between uh, Ramsey, New Jersey, which is a small suburb in, in New Jersey, and uh, Chelsea, Manhattan, which is primarily where I live. I'm an empty nester now. So uh, both my sons uh, are in college. Uh, one just graduated and he's starting law school. So um, that's really my background. I, I have two dogs. I'm kind of a homebody. So okay. um, I'm, I'm – uh, for, for someone that has the The excitement that I have in my professional life, you know, uh, negotiating, you know, very complex divorces and and arguing in court for clients and very high stakes litigation for, you know, celebrity clients and 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 high net worth clients. Um, I, I, when I'm not in court, I'm, I'm the most boring person you'll probably ever meet. <laughs> I'm, I'm super happy to uh, uh, to be at home with my my dogs uh, and a book. So
0: we have a little bit in common. I went to NYU for undergrad, oh. and then my husband went to Fordham for undergrad. okay. But All he right. was at uh, Rose Hill. Rose so Hill, yeah. Yep. But New York. Uh, we had a little New York in our life, though yeah. we are Californians originally. Yeah. So it was kind of like a vacation for eight years. You know, every York. time I
1: come to California, I, I I think to myself, what what am I doing? What yeah. am I doing in New York, especially this time of year, because, you know, it's it's snowing currently in New York right now. And my, my staff just called me to say, can we go home early today? There's six inches of snow on the ground, mm-hmm. and it's only getting worse. And, and I did let them go home early. That was nice so of you. I, I try to be a nice boss. If you had but. to be
0: there, though, you probably would be like, no, we're all staying.
1: No, I would let them go. And I would probably oh, okay. stay. I, right. I tend to, you know, I would. Is I, I try to be the employer I wish I'd had okay. when I was an employee mm-hmm. um, my staff might argue with that but I don't think they would um, because I, I really do remember it's the same reason why I over tip in restaurants mm-hmm. you know I was a waiter for yes. a really long time and so I have tremendous tremendous sympathy for servers yeah. and I I just know how hard that job is yeah. and I know how much that money means when, right. when you're a server and, and and how hard you hustle for four or five dollars you know so right. I I really um, I always try to be that I always try to to, to take that to my, to my work.
0: Yeah. yeah. What were Did you get your master's and your almost PhD in?
1: Uh, it was in, uh, of, the field is actually, the, 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 the degree is actually gone now as a course of study at NYU, but it was called media ecology. Okay. And it's the study of information environments as if they were a physical environment. So essentially the way I used to describe it to people is, is my concentration was in propaganda studies. So okay. I was interested in mass persuasion. I was interested in, in how we speak persuasively and particularly how do we persuade large audiences. So I looked at advertising and I looked at uh, you know, World War II propaganda. And I, 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 a lot of my research was focused on how the principles that were used for World War II propaganda are actually the exact same principles that are used in advertising and how advertising is basically the opposite of therapy. You okay. know, whereas therapy is designed to make you feel like you're okay and you're I good, mm-hmm. that advertising's primary message is you're not okay. Right? You're you, not okay. You, you could this. be. You could be okay if you buy this particular consumer product. <laughs> Interesting. So I, I studied that and and um I wrote about that in 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 a lot of different you know from a lot of different angles. But I found that the academic life wasn't really for me. I I, I didn't want to just stand in kind of the echo chamber of academia where I would stand and just give my opinions to Mm -hmm. people and students would passively listen and write Mm -hmm. it down. I didn't think that was, was the environment that, that, that I wanted. I wanted more of a give and take. And I found that that I found that in a courtroom.
0: Interesting. Okay. So I am a lover of true crime. That's like Mm -hmm. a genre that I really like. I've always been a little bit infatuated with like trial lawyers. So I kind of want you really more for me than for my listeners, which is fine. That's why I made the podcast Um, to tell me what it's like to be a trial lawyer because like we've all seen law and order and I know that it's not that necessarily. It's a lot like that. It is. It's a lot
1: like that. Yeah, I mean courtroom <laughs> law is like that. If you talk to most lawyers, most mm-hmm. lawyers aren't trial lawyers. Right. Most lawyers are highly paid proofreaders. Right. I mean they, they they read contracts, they make comments on them, they, they try to see you know, the chess match of things. They try to think three or four moves ahead and contingencies, but trial law is very much like that. It's storytelling. I mean, it's, it's a really, really finely tuned version of storytelling with very specific rules. And, and the challenge of it is how do you make your story be told within these very strict rules and still have it feel organic and compelling mm-hmm. to your audience, you know, to your audience is a judge, your audience is the other side, you know, and, and, I love it. I mean, I, I have to tell you, being I'm, I, I jokingly tell people, but it's not really jokingly, I, I, I feel more comfortable in a courtroom than I do in my living room. Hmm. In my living room, I kind of don't know what to do with myself right. sometimes. Whereas in a courtroom, I know exactly what to do and exactly how to do it. And I absolutely love it. I mean, t- telling someone's story is, is incredibly exciting. Confronting people in cross-examination mm. is, is perhaps the most exciting thing you can do. Um, you know, taking someone's logic and, and statements and weaponizing them against them is, is just an exhilaration that I, I can't put into words. I mean, I, I, I come out of trials exhausted in a way I can't explain because the amount of awareness you have to have when you're in a courtroom watching the judge, watching the other side, watching your client, listening to your client who's handing you notes furiously, usually mm-hmm. saying he's lying, you know. Right. <laughs> and and you you just have to be able to on your feet very fast, you know, make decisions, choices, tactical gambits, you know, am I going to, I'm going to ask this person this question and I kind of know the answer and I hope they're going to give me this particular answer so I can right. the next question hit them over the head with it. And it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's a lot, lot of fun.
0: Does it feel in the moment like exciting or does it feel in the moment chaotic? Like it, No,
1: it never feels chaotic. It, it, feels. it, it, it feels really, um, I, I have the same experience all the time. I've done hundreds of trials mm-hmm. now, and I always have the same experience. I'm, You know, absolutely frantic when I'm preparing for them Mm -hmm. because I always tell people a trial is a little like cooking Chinese food. You know, like getting the ingredients, chopping them up, marinating them. That's the hard part. Mm -hmm. The easy part is throwing it in the wok. Right. And so trial is throwing it in the wok. Okay. But but it's everything. If you do that part wrong, you're you're completely screwed. So the prep part is really hard because you you never have the feeling when you're a trial lawyer of okay, I'm I've done enough. I'm done you always go, well, I should reread this and make sure I'm familiar with this and let me practice this and let me give some more thought to that. And so it, it haunts you all the time. Like if I go jogging, I, I'm thinking about my cases while I'm jogging. Right. And so I, I, I really do think that um, I'm terrified when I go in for every trial. I, I have this sense as it's starting of, oh, my God, oh, my God, am I going to remember everything and am I going to be able to do everything and are all these things that I'm planning going to work? And then you walk in and it's it's almost like athletic competition. You just walk in and, and something kind of comes over you of, nope, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. And, and, right. and then it just feels like a flow state. I don't know how else to put it. It just feels incredibly comfortable and 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 um, and exciting. Like I said, it's just tri- trial work is amazing because you really do, everything slows down and mm-hmm. people have to, to be confronted by the truth and they have to be they have to answer for the things that they say, and and it 's an amazing thing to watch because we live in an era of fake news, we live in an era of accusation of fake news when it isn 't fake news, right. where truth is is relative all the time right. and, and it's really, really wonderful, even in these small moments in a, in a courtroom, of seeing truth be confronted right. and, and, and really brought to light and There are times where you can you can do wonderful things i mean you can see someone's entire life will change because of the result that you got them in a courtroom. And, Mm. you know, that can be wonderful. And it can also be awful because I represent, you know, some terrible people as well. I mean, I represent people who my job is to help obfuscate the facts and my job is to help hide the truth. And I can't claim I wear a white hat. I don't. You know, I'm constantly uh, representing great people and I'm constantly representing horrible people. I wanted to
0: ask you about that. So in your book, (laughs) if you're in my office, it's already too late. A Divorce Lawyer's Guide to Staying Together The book is kind of a mix of – well, it's a how not to, essentially. Like how not to fuck up your marriage (laughs) or your relationship if you're not married yet. Um, And you talk a little bit about kind of your own – not philosophy, but your own take on kind of what you've seen, your own interpretation. You give us some – anecdotes of people's events, you know, mm-hmm. this person, this threesome or right. this, you know, right. horrible person or this great person or whatever. But there's one thing that I would really stuck out in my head is you talk about how you can't get rid of your clients. Like mm-hmm. if you find out that they're yeah. bad guys. And I wanted to ask you about that because yeah. I didn't, does that, is that true? You can't fire yeah. your client? Yeah. The logic behind it is actually very well intentioned,
1: but the effect is, is difficult. So the intent, the, the logical intention of it was, so that a lawyer couldn't come into a case, burn through a client's money, mm-hmm. and then when the client ran out of money, say, okay, I'm not representing you anymore.
0: Oh. So,
1: so what the courts did to prevent that from – because it used to happen. It used to happen all the time before I practiced law. And so in the 80s, really, is when mm-hmm. it, it reached its pinnacle, where people would come into Because you can bill $50,000 of fees in one month, of right. course. I mean, it, it, you know, cases like lawyer time, $600 an hour. Wow. You know, and, and the lawyers who work for me sometimes will have a whole team working on a case. If you have a case with a client who has a, you know, a $500 million net worth, it can take a team of, you know, 15 lawyers six months to figure out all of their assets oh and where God. they are and how to divide them. Okay. So... What happens with your regular divorce, your mom and pop typical person who doesn't have $500 million and 15 you know, properties to value, you, you, you know, there's a limited pool of assets. Maybe they have a couple hundred thousand dollars put away. Well, lawyers would come in, they'd burn through the couple of hundred thousand dollars really quick, and then they'd say, okay, um, here's my bill for for this month. And the client would say, well, look, I don't, I don't have it. I don't have $50,000 to write you a check for this month. And they'd say, okay, you're on your own then, and they'd walk away. So the court system said, okay, you're not allowed to do that anymore. The only way you can get off a case is either your client can fire you, they mm-hmm. can discharge you voluntarily, or you can make a motion to the court to be relieved as counsel. And you have to show that there's been what's called an irretrievable breakdown in the attorney-client relationship. Mm. The problem is this. If you have a client who you're pretty sure is guilty, or mm-hmm. you're pretty sure is a, an abuser or perpetrator of domestic violence, or just someone you wouldn't want to deal with, or, or you know or they're just an awful person to deal with you know, right. on, a, on an interpersonal level, it's very, very hard to explain to a judge that you want to get off the case without prejudicing your client in right. the eyes of that of the judge. Right. And you have a duty to your client to not prejudice them in the eyes of the court. So it's a very tricky thing. And so mm. you end up sometimes in cases. Because look, you know, one of the things I learned, and I, I think I talk about a little bit in the book, is that people are very invested in their own perspective and you meet them. And, and you meet anyone and they talk about their marriage. Very few people when they talk about their divorce or their their failed or failing marriage Will you listen to them and go, oh, it's entirely your fault? You'll, right. you'll usually hear their version of it. History is written by the winners, you know? Right. So someone will sit there and say to you, oh, this is what my wife's doing. This is what's going on. And da, 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 And you say, okay, well, that sounds pretty reasonable. And then you get in and you see there's a whole other set of facts. This person has a massive drinking problem or they've been, you know, wildly, you know, committing right. adultery for right, how many right, right. years or they've been physically abusive to their partner. And, and so by the time you figure out your client is
0: an awful human being, <laughs> They're your client already. Right. So now you have a duty. You know? So you do have an out in the beginning. Like if someone came to you and you just got like a bad vibe. And I, you, I don't take the case. You could, okay,
1: got I, it. I'm very lucky that, that I've reached the point in my career after doing it for 20 years that I don't take every case that comes in. Got it. And, and so I'm very blessed that there's a lot of demand for my practice, but I'm, I'm only one person. Right. There's only so many hours in the day. so. I don't take every case anymore. Mm-hmm. I have a team of lawyers who work for me and, and, and we do take some cases and, and I'll, 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 ha- I'll tell the client, listen, I'm not going to work that much personally on your case. I'm going to hand it off to one of the attorneys who works with me. But I, I'm very choosy now about what clients I work with. And I won't work with someone if I have the wrong vibe with them or if, if I can tell by their vocabulary, you know that 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 they're someone who I think might be a perpetrator of domestic violence, or they might be someone who's you know racist or anti-Semitic or homophobic or transphobic or any of the things that don't match with my personal right. constitution. I'm not going to deal with that person.
0: Right. That's nice. Yeah. That's a nice. But sometimes you, you don't that. find
1: that stuff out until <laughs> until too late. You know, halfway through the case. And then, and then
0: what do you do? Like, if you suspect a client. Like, let's say you have a divorce, you're representing the woman mm-hmm. and she, you have this feeling that she's abusive to her children mm-hmm. or something sure. and, and they're fighting over custody and this yeah. and that. Can, can you go to the judge and say no. like, you can't, no. So my there's no my way to advocate to for those kids. No,
1: my job is to protect
0: my client. That's so shitty.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a hard situation to be in. Um, sometimes what I'll say is that, that human emotional complexity I think is a real thing and, and. People, you know, hurt people hurt people, you know, and and I really see that in my job, you know, and and, and when I have a client who is abusive, you know, I've represented perpetrators of domestic violence. And usually if you talk to them, there's violence in their background. Right. They watched their father beat their mother, you know, mm-hmm. and now they beat their spouse, and and where they they were abused by a parent, and now they abuse people. And and you know, uh, I mean, the, the statistical research about you know perpetrators of of for example, you know, uh, sexual assaults on children, you know, they're almost always victims of sexual assault themselves mm-hmm. when they were children. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying that that gives you a free pass to anything, but it certainly makes you realize, okay. This is a person they've strayed from this path of, of, you know, how to treat another human being. They have a right in our system to the best defense possible. They have a right to have someone advocate for them. The system works most of the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we do not have a perfect legal system by any stretch of the imagination, (laughs) but we have a legal system when it comes to family law that that gets it right a lot of the time and Mm -hmm. and doesn't allow an unfair result a lot of the time. And if if everyone had good lawyers, I, there's a story, I'm, I'm sure you'll recall in the book, where I talk about a, a case I had where I represented a, an atrocious person. Yes. He was a pimp, actually. A, like, and I don't say that in like a, like a Jay-Z, like he's a pimp. I mean, like he's, he was a pimp. That's what he did. And um, he was a horrible, horrible mm-hmm. human being. And, um, he, you know, he lost, uh, he won his case because his wife's attorney was wildly inexperienced. And right. that was very, very hard. That was very, very hard to do. Um it, it wasn't hard to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell you, uh this is an exclusive. I, I haven't discussed that before. <laughs> But but I um, you know, I read the audiobook of my uh-huh. of my book. And uh, I was reading, and you know, it's a very weird experience reading the audiobook because they put you in a little sound booth yeah. and you have to sit and read the whole book. And this is a book you wrote maybe six months ago or a year ago. And you write. And write and rewrite and rewrite. My, my agent says that, you know, writers write and professional writers rewrite. Right. It's so true. By the time you, you hand in a book, you've rewritten it, you know, 15 right. times. And I hadn't read my book cover to cover uh, in a long time. And I'd never read it out loud. And... When I read that chapter out loud, I, I actually at the end of it had the like I got very choked up mm. and I had because there's an internal dialogue I have at the end of it where I sort of say like this shouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Like I I won and I shouldn't have won. Right. And I won because this person's poor. Right. I won because this person didn't have a good lawyer, you know. And and to me that's a incredibly to to feel that when I read it out loud, I, I got really upset. I needed to take a couple of minutes to sort of calm myself because – it really felt um, horrible to have that experience, mm-hmm. you know, and to have um, the experience of being uh, a perpetrator of of an unfair right. thing, you know, in that way, and so. I won't say it doesn't take a toll on you sometimes. Mm-hmm. I will say to you in a 20 year career, I can think of only three or four times okay. that I really had to grapple with my conscience that way. And I don't know any professional who hasn't had that experience. Sure. I mean, from the surgeon, you know, the trauma surgeon who's, you know, African American and, and, and is, you know, uh, uh, he has a gunshot victim in his ER who's got swastikas. Right. And, you know, uh, I mean, that, that's got to be hard. But you look at it and go, look, my job right. is what my job is. And, right. and whether this person, whether I'm going to save this person, they're going to go out and perpetrate violence against people who of my skin color for the reason of that skin color. That's not for me to do. My, my thing is this person is here. They need my help and I'm going to help them.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's too bad that there's not um, something that protects the kids in, you know what I mean? Like I that's mean, the hard part. theoretically there is that children are assigned
1: attorneys and, and the attorney is supposed to advocate on behalf of the children. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's tough. It is tough. <laughs> there, there is also, there are cases where I've said to people, you know, like, when we speak candidly to the judges after a case is over, I'll often say, you know what, in some custody cases, like these kids should be given a loaded gun and a head start because right. these parents are horrible. <laughs> right. You know, and I've, I've said in negotiation, I mean, I'm getting more and more blunt as, as I get older, but uh, it's one of the pleasant side effects of middle age is that I, I, I'll i have a four-way meeting, you know, with an mm-hmm. opposing counsel myself and the husband and the wife. And uh, I'll say to them, you know, what you guys like t- put aside 20 grand for your kids therapy. Because right, you guys are just screwing them up so fucking bad, right? Wow, like you're just gonna mess them up, and and you know what? Like if this is how you two are, and this is how you're gonna behave towards each other, and you've got a six year old, right? Like that kid's doomed. That kid's yeah, that kid you needs know? help. That's but so sometimes, sometimes that's. You know, that, that actually snaps people back into reality. Yeah. You know, when you say to them that bluntly, like, you're fucking your kid up. You right. get that, right? Like, right. it doesn't have
0: to be like this. Yeah. You have that line also in the book where you talk about, you know, your daughter's going to have a wedding. Yeah. What kind of wedding? Like, how do you, who do you, do you want to be? You wanna be at that wedding? Yeah, do you, yeah, do you, you be want be to be the husband and wife? Because we've
1: had the wedding, like, we've all been to the wedding where mom and dad have to be at separate ends of the room because yeah. if they pass each other by the shrimp boat, they're going to throw shit at each other. Yeah. And we've seen the wedding where mom and dad, you know, they're divorced, but they stand there for the pictures and maybe they have a drink or they even have a dance and they go... You know what? We screwed the marriage up, but we, we did a good job
0: with these kids. Yeah. And and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing if right. you can do it. You know? And that's kind of, I mean, in the essence of your book, if I if I could be so bold to boil it down, is that a lot of what you're talking about is just making the choices, like mm-hmm. choosing marriage, choosing the other person, choosing to care, choosing yeah. to be engaged, choosing to support each other, as opposed to kind of just like letting marriage happen. hundred percent. Well, it's, it's, it's like a very an active... strange,
1: hundred percent. And I, I, that's actually a really great distillation of, of what I was trying to say. So that makes me really happy okay. to hear you say it. <laughs> I, I, I think it's very strange, you know, if you were dating your husband mm-hmm. and you weren't married and you were dating and you were happy and you had a lovely relationship mm-hmm. and you said, we're not going to get married mm-hmm. to, to one of your friends. You have to explain that decision. yes. yes. Whereas if you say, we're getting married, everyone goes, oh, oh my God, of course you are. That's right. wonderful. What a great thing. Right. Okay. You're talking about something that fails roughly 53% of the time in terms of divorces. And how many people stay together just for the kids or because they mm-hmm. don't want to give away half their stuff? Another 10%, 20%. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we've got a technology that fails 73% of the time. Right. That's insane. If yeah. I said to you right now... When you walk out the front door, you're going to get hit in the head with a bowling ball. It's a 73% chance. You would stay indoors, yes. or if you went out, you'd wear a helmet.
0: No, I would never leave. You'd never leave? I have anxiety. All right. okay. So,
1: so, so then you definitely <laughs> never leave. But, but there is an assumption that you'll get married. Yes. And very often people don't ask the question, you know, and this is where my, my background in media ecology comes out, is this idea of, what is the problem to which marriage is a solution? Right. Like, what, what problem did you have? Is it the problem of loneliness? Because it might not solve that problem. Is it right. the problem of not having sex? Because it might not solve might that not problem. Solve and that there's either. a lot of other ways to solve that yeah. problem. So I, I think the fact that it's assumed that people will get married and that it is, a, it is the right thing for them, for mm-hmm. that particular combination of people, 7.3 billion people in the world, and you picked one person mm-hmm. to say, this is the person I want to partner up with. And listen, when it works, it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. I, I always say marriage is like the lottery. You're probably not going to win. Right. But if you win, what you win is so, so good. good. Yeah. Buy the ticket. You yeah. might as well. Yeah. So yeah. but I do think that unlike the lottery, there are very high stakes when you get married.
0: Yeah, and unlike the lottery, it's not just luck. Exactly. Like right. there it's hard work. I mean, I have not been married long enough to really know how hard of work it is, right. but I have been with my husband for almost 9 years now mm-hmm. and it it is like, you know, we do a thing every year on our anniversary of becoming boyfriend and girlfriend, where we ask each other if we'd like to do this again for another year. So like right. we at least have a conversation once a year that's like, would you like to re-up? And we said yes so far. I don't think that we'll say no anytime mm-hmm. soon. But if mm-hmm. I thought that, I probably already would have said no. Right. You know.
1: Well, but, but you say yes
0: every day. I mean, yeah, the truth is yes that's, that's,
1: that's honoring... Uh, You know, and it's kind of commemorating and ceremonializing, you know, what you're really doing every day. Every day you wake up and you go, I'm going to stay in this marriage.
0: Right. But at least, I mean, like, I'm sure you know, at least it brings that conversation. Because I think a lot of what I learned from your book is, like, people aren't having the conversations. Mm -hmm. And um, I definitely took things from your book that I've already started. And my husband and I, we're not sure if we're going to have kids. We're Mm -hmm. just not sure Sure, yet. And we're thinking about it. And one of the things I said, I was like, listen, I got this great advice. If we have kids, we're going to do split custody Mm -hmm. for at least one weekend a month. And I thought it was the most genius idea, which is essentially you at least have one or two weekends a month where you're not responsible for your kids, which is what people who are divorced or maybe were never married or whatever, who have children who have split – do mm-hmm. they split the custody of their children, and that allows you to have you time where you yeah. can do girls' yeah. weekend, or you can just go stay at a hotel, or you could get your nails done? And like maybe it's not that you're completely gone, but it's just breakfast isn't your responsibility. The,
1: the fact that this has actually been regarded as a somewhat controversial idea in my book is is it controversial? To I, me. It was
0: my favorite. I thing.
1: received so much <laughs> negative feedback really? about that a lot of positive, but a lot of negative too. And I was. I'm rarely stunned by criticism, but hmm. I have to say that caught me completely off guard because That's people so said, you know, if you have children, your children are your responsibility and, and making them a priority is absolutely the most important thing. And the idea that people should just sort of, you know, run off and pretend that they don't have children. And I, I, it was in no way my intention to suggest that. My intention was to That's say so that, that children will do best when they have two parents who love them, right. and who are happy in their own lives, right. and who have a happy relationship with each other, right. and who remember who they are, right. and 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 can share with their children who they are, and it is so easy. You know, Thoreau is the one who said that the hardest thing in the world to become is yourself, mm. and 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 to stay yourself, and and there are parts of you that you lose when you get married. Yes, you know, there there because marriage is there's you, there's me, and now there's we. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like one of the fundamental themes of the book was, was just cultivate the you, cultivate the me, cultivate the we. Because mm-hmm. if we're married, okay, I fell in love with you. Right. You fell in love with me. We're building a we. We're building a you and I. But if we let that you and I subsume the identity of the you and the me, if you used to go to yoga, if you used to read all the time, yeah. and then now because reading is an isolating activity mm-hmm. and it's something that you sort of sit and do on your own, you say, well, you know what? Instead of doing that, we'll go for a walk together or we'll do that. Okay. Well, now you're not as well read and now you're not right. as informed. Now you're not the person that I enjoyed having those conversations right. with. And, and so, you know, I think we owe it to our partner and, and even selfishly to ourselves. Right. To feed the parts of them that make them them, right. you know, and that th- make them
0: thrive. You yeah, because when someone's unhappy, be it a spouse or a friend or a child or whatever – it's hard to connect. 100%. You know, like that stuff that's really real. Like And it's easy
1: to blame the person you're yeah. with. Yeah.
0: And it's hard to like even talk to someone who's not feel like someone who's maybe battling like a bout of depression or whatever it is yeah. or just like feels in a funk. Yeah. You know, so it make to me that part that's what custody park makes so much sense. Yeah.
1: I think I think it's a it's a fine idea and I do I'm a divorced person myself and and I um you know I had a a, a wonderful marriage and I had a a really wonderful divorce. My my ex-wife is one of my best friends. Um, she's uh, remarried very happily to a wonderful man who is far better suited for her <laughs> long-term romantic relationship than I am. Um, and, and and you know, I say to my sons who are now adults all the time that your mother was one of the great loves of my life. I, I was a better man for having met her. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly happy that I was with her and married mm-hmm. to her and I have wonderful children with her. But, you know, the, the truth is that, that there are a lot of people I love that I wouldn't want to be married to. Correct. And so, I, in fact, there's a long list of people a longer that I list, love probably. Right, that I wouldn't <laughs> want to be married to. And, and I really do believe that, that parenting is a very specific skill set. Mm-hmm. Being married is a very specific skill set. I think I was an excellent and am an excellent father. Mm-hmm. I think I was a subpar husband, you know, and 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 because it's a different skill set. Yeah. And so I, I really do think that that we're better off being really blunt with ourselves about what are we good at, you know, and and how do we stay good at it? And how do you keep this sort of, you know, how do you keep the weapon sharp? And the mm-hmm. way to keep it sharp is, especially when it comes to kids, like have some time away from them, have some time to yourself, remember who you are. I don't think that should be a controversial idea. I used to talk to my friends about my life and they, the, the married, intact, married people with children would be a little bit envious of the fact that I had one weekend where I had my kids and I could give them my undivided attention. And I would say to everyone, Oh, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm with my kids this weekend. Mm-hmm. And then the next weekend I could do whatever the hell I wanted, Right. And I knew that my children were with the only person in the world who loves them as much as me. Right. I mean what an amazing thing. Right. It was a wonderful wonderful experience. Right. Like and the and best babysitter ever. <laughs> I think it made us both better parents and I'm not saying that 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 having a divorced family doesn't also have sets of right. problems that come with it. There were Thanksgivings where I would go, wow, I don't I don't have my kids with me right. this Thanksgiving, this you sad. know, and that's very sad. It's very hard. There are moments in your children's life that you miss when you're not with them every single weekend. But the truth is 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 I feel for me Having time where I could be a dedicated focused parent and time where I could just remember who I was in the absence of children was an incredibly helpful thing to me as a person and and i I think one of the reasons I have two incredibly you know well developed thoughtful sons is because they got to really experience the fullness of me, the fullness of their mother, that right. their mother on the weekends when the boys were with me knew that they were in very good hands and that I was reliable and, and doing you know, a great job of caring for them. And she could go and live her life and enjoy herself. And, right. and I think that that could be a gift. And I don't think you have to get divorced to do that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why people feel they have to get divorced to do that. I think you could have a conscious conversation with your spouse about, look, let's divide up this time that we, we parent together in a way that's equitable. And and equitable doesn't mean equal. Equitable means fair. Right. So let's come up with something that's fair. You know, yeah. let's come up with something that we, we both really feel good about and where both of us don't feel like our parenting is crushing our identity. Because that's what I think a lot of people, when they're having the discussion about, are we going to have children or not? They're looking at it and going, well, do I really want my entire identity to just turn 100%. into this, this insane yes. people that, that people just say, my, my children are the most important thing that's in my life. And it's like a yes. Stepford thing, you know? And I... <laughs> yes.
0: I, I'm trying to have kids and then not have to be around my kids, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, but the truth I mean, is, not exactly, but some of There is a lot of, of having
1: children that is tremendously rote and boring. Yes. And, and the first six and months of a baby is like a pet that doesn't do anything. Yeah. It's just, mm-hmm. but the truth is, is it is a wonderfully rewarding experience. Yeah. Going to China is a wonderfully yes. rewarding experience. You can live a very happy life and never go to China. Yeah. I mean, so you can live a very happy life and not have children. Yes. And I think that- If you're gonna have them though, I I think it's worth again, like marriage, having the conversation about okay, why are we having them? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, well we have to have children. Why? So that so that that we can raise them. Why? (laughs) So that they can have children. Okay, so we want to have children so they can eventually grow up and have children so right. that their children can eventually grow up growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of a cancer cell
0: right you sure. know
1: so so if the purpose of, of life is to have children so your children can have children so their children can have children mm-hmm. then then you're you're just a mammal. I mean, this right. is not a, there's nothing spiritual or psychological to that. There's right. nothing. So the, the truth is, is I, I think you have to have a conversation about why are we having children? What is it we want from the experience of having children? And is it something we'll get from the experience of having children? Or is it something that, that this is a Band-Aid on a bullet wound?
0: Right. Yeah. Well, the book is really great. It has a lot of different interesting advice that I'd not heard before. Not that I necessarily read a ton of relationship advice, but I it was things that I hadn't heard, like just, you know, out and about in life. So if you're in a marriage and you're looking for maybe something to kind of like freshen up or re like, how can I, I feel like marriage is one of those things where I'm always like, how can I be doing this a little better? Mm-hmm. Like, sure. what could I be doing? And sure. this book definitely helped. Oh, um, I couldn't, we couldn't talk about everything in it today, but check it out. It's called, if you're in my office, it's already too late. It's by James J. Sexton, ex- Esquire. Very fancy. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. But now we're going to talk about your reading life because sure. I know you're a big reader. Kind of, how, how does reading fit into your life?
1: You know, I grew up reading a ton. My parents both read constantly. Um, and so I, I associated reading as an adult activity, okay. which is something <laughs> that grownups did. So, I think I wanted to mirror it in the way that you do when you're like a little boy and you see your dad shaving, you kind of want to shave. Um, I was also, I, I grew up without money. And, and um, you know, when you're a kid, having a lot feels good, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like you could say to a kid, do you want like this handful of pennies or mm-hmm. do you want these couple of quarters? And you would be like, oh, give me all those pennies because right. it's more, yeah. you know? Yeah. And other than Halloween, where I would get like a massive amount of candy, I, I you know, when we'd go to a store, I couldn't buy anything. We didn't mm-hmm. have money and if we went to the mall i couldn't buy anything cuz we didn't have money but i could go to the library mm. and i could i could leave with just bags of books i could just leave with tons you know and i remember my first memories of the library were this feeling of i could walk in and i didn't have to have any money i could just have that little card and i could walk out with tons of stuff. And right. it would entertain me for days, you know. And my parents had this very strange uh, attitude. I look back now and it, it's entirely inconsistent. They were very religious Catholics. So I was raised in a very religious Catholic household. I went to Catholic school my whole life. For a period of time, I could only see movies that were on the Vatican approved <laughs> list. Um, and, and so I, I really grew up in this sort of very sheltered environment. And um, but my parents had the attitude that you could read whatever you wanted to read. So you couldn't watch The Love Boat, for example, on TV. I couldn't watch Fantasy Island. Um, I couldn't watch most TV shows that had any kind of sex or violence in them. But I could read any book I wanted. Hmm. So even if it had sex and violence and everything else in it. So um, I right away learned that, okay, if I really want to like see the things that you want to see when you're a young person, when I was 10, 11, 12, or even going through puberty, you know, if I wanted to like – see sex. I couldn't see it on TV and we didn't have a VCR. So I couldn't see pornography or anything like that. And the internet didn't exist, but I could go to the library and I could buy a Like I could, I could take out a book that had sex scenes in it. Right. And so I remember (laughs) the first book I ever read with a sex scene was a book by Eric van Lustbader called The Ninja. Mm. And it had like this, you know, graphic sex scene, you know, that now I read it and I'm like, this is the most benign thing in the world, you know, (laughs) and not even terribly well written. Um, But I remember it was so exciting, you know, Mm. and so... I just equated reading with, with, um, with adulthood, with, you know, with, with, with the world being sort of exposed and open to me. And so I just always had a love for reading and, and, and it has not gone away. I mean, I think when I was in graduate school and in law school, you're forced to read a tremendous amount. Um, so that took a little of the joy of it out for me, but, um, I'm, I'm a very voracious reader. I'm always reading, you know, two or three books at a time and, um, you know, I, I I like to read books that challenge me. I like to read books that um, that I can relate to. I, I really have a very diverse, you know, reading palette. So I
0: love that. Have you read the library book by Susan Orlean? No. I it haven't. just came out, but it's it's a love letter to libraries slash yeah. a true crime book about the fire at the L.A. Public Library oh, wow. in 1986. It's really good. I it, feel like I'm going
1: to have to take notes during this yeah, conversation. Well, I'll actually link to everything out
0: on out on in the app. show notes Excellent. so you'll be able Excellent. to find it when this episode Very comes good. out. Um, okay. Tell me two books you love and one book you hate.
1: All right. So two, two, well, that's a, that's a hard one. So, so two books, the books I love part is easy. The books I hate part is hard. But my my favorite book, when people say to me, what's your favorite book? is a book by Mark Salzman called The Soloist. Okay. It's an obscure book. I've never heard of it. I don't know that it was a huge book when it came out. It wasn't probably. Um, It is a, it is a beautiful book. That's all I can say. It's a book about a, a cello prodigy. It's fiction. And it's a book about a, 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 a child cello prodigy who grows up and stops playing the cello mm. and who lives alone and kind of hasn't figured out how to navigate the world because he grew up in this very strange setting of being a mm-hmm. prodigy at something. And um, and he lives a very sort of alienated kind of life. And he ends up being a juror on a murder trial. Ooh. And it's it's just a beautifully written book. Mark Salzman's a, a very talented writer. He wrote several books that I enjoyed. One was called Waking Up, um, which was about, or Lying Awake, sorry, which was about a, a nun. Um, he, he writes in someone else's voice so well, mm. and, he, and he just really writes characters beautifully. But the book The Soloist is is um, is one of those books that I pick up every couple of years and just reread <laughs> because it's just a beautifully written book. So that's one of my favorite books. Um one of my other favorites is television by Augustine Burroughs. Okay. So Augustine Burroughs got a lot of acclaim yeah. for um, Running With Scissors and Dry and yeah. some of his later books. But television was his first book. Oh, okay. And he actually wrote it uh, when he was like an active alcoholic and um, drug user. And, and But it's about a QVC shopping channel
0: <laughs> and
1: this just this dysfunctional – it's a comedy – like mad cat it's it's one of the funniest things i've ever read It, it it's a lot like tom parada's books little okay. children or yeah. election um where it's just intersecting storylines told from different characters perspectives and you know it'll tell like this was this person's perception of what happened and now here's this other person's perception sort of like a, a um what is it big little lies yeah. or yeah it's very very much like that like the same scene but told from three different perspectives and the facts change based on who's telling right. the story And it's just a hilarious, hilarious (laughs) book. In terms of of books I hate, my sister, uh, Lori Forrest, uh, wrote a book called The Black Witch, which has actually uh, been out for a couple of years now. The sequel just came out called The Iron Flower, and it's done very well. It's a young adult uh, fiction book. I, I feel like I have to say I hate that book. Okay. Um, I, I I don't, I, I only hate it because my sister wrote it. Okay. And I feel like I have to taunt her got in it, some way. Okay. Um, so I just want there to be some pull quote from this, I see. James Sexton says, Black Witch. I yeah. hated it. I
0: hate my sister. Um, and yeah. And, and Lori, Lori Forrest
1: is a hack <laughs> of an author um, because she's six years older than me and uh, and and um, we, we've had a long habit of torturing each other. Perfect. And, uh, and when she got a book deal, it was a very exciting thing. And then I got a book deal like a, like a year or so. So later, and she said, Oh, well, you can't let me have right. anything in anything. this family, you know. So um, but but her her genre of books uh is you know young adult fantasy fiction, mm. and it's a very kind of woke version of Harry Potter. It's okay. it's it's uh it, it addresses issues of, of, of LGBTQ <laughs> discrimination, and um it tackles themes of racism. It 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 was it came under some very unfair controversy when it first came out um, because uh, people felt like the character arc didn't, like the redemption arc of this character who's raised in this very racist society, essentially um, racist against these particular, you know, fantasy breeds of of elves or whatever it is. I I hate that genre, but, um, and she knows it. I joke with her all the time. I'm like, I I say, how do you write a book with dragons in it? Like, I just, (laughs) I don't know how you do it. How do you read one? Um, But but it, it really is a book about, you know, we don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't a fish, right. you know, like this, this young woman is raised in this racist society, and is a racist. And then over time, she begins to realize that that, you know, what she's been taught is wrong, and she mm-hmm. has to unlearn all of it. And she becomes sort of the leader of a revolution against it. And and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really good book, but it's very challenging to read, because the first several hundred pages is filled with, you know, this sort of vitriolic, you know, incredibly xenophobic, uh, you know, heterosexist worldview. Right. And so, um, you know, that, that, that was a, uh, a, it caught some controversy, but it's thankfully it's been appreciated by some really amazing people and it's done very well overall. Um, but but I, ha- I would have to say, uh, if asked what book I hate, I hate that book only because I would have been the cool author in my family. Yes, and your sister beat And my sister you outsold it. me. I yeah, think so. I, can't, I can no longer say <laughs> that. But other than that, I don't really hate. You know, even when I don't enjoy a book. I, I very often sort of feel like, oh, OK, you know, yeah. like I, I gave it a on. shot and I'll just move on. Yeah. I, I don't stick with a book that I really hate. Yeah. Like if I'm reading a book and I just am not enjoying it, I'll put it down. Life is too short to, to read bad books. Agreed. And, and so if I'm 10 chapters in and this thing just is not hooking me, I'll put it down. Yeah. And that doesn't happen that often, thankfully. I'm careful yeah. with what I pick.
0: That's good. How do you pick your
1: next book? Um, Podcasts are good. I mean, I have to say, I I I found a few on yours here. (laughs) Yeah, in the past, I found a few. And, um, you know, New York Times Book Review, I think, is very useful. And I'm not just saying that because they spoke very highly of my book. (laughs) Um, I I would have spoke highly of them before. Um, And I I like, um, you know, recommendations from friends and family. Um, I I think that I get a lot of uh, really good recommendations um, from the people in my life. Um my, my wife is 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 a voracious reader and, and she's always reading something interesting and and uh you know she'll say to me, like, oh listen to this, and she'll read me a paragraph of it, and I'll go, okay, all right, I'm gonna pick that one up. So um that's I think very uh you know a, a really good source for mm-hmm. me. But but most often I, lately it's been podcasts. I I someone is a guest on something that I listen to and and I go, Oh, I like that perspective. I think I want to read that.
0: Oh nice. What's the last great book you read? I just read about three
1: weeks ago. Fiction: um The Power of the Dog by Don never Winslow. It.
0: Oh, I know who that Amazing. is. Amazing.
1: He wrote The Force. He wrote The Cartel. Yeah. This was the first book in that series of books about Mexican drug cartels.
0: Wait, what's it called?
1: The Power of the Dog.
0: I have read that. I have it.
1: Yeah, it's phenomenal. <laughs> I, I I had it for about four <laughs> Wait, years.
0: That's hilarious. And I was like, I don't know. It that. <laughs> sat
1: on my shelf for ages, and I just never got around to it.
0: Yes, 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 and yes. And
1: I I. Finally, brought it on vacation, which is where I do a lot of. I read it on vacation too.
0: It's a great vacation. It was an amazing book, (laughs) and,
1: and and it was really really well done. The characters were riveting. Um, he's a he's a strong writer. Um, and I thought the topic was so fascinating. The interplay between politics and geopolitics and finance and the drug wars and 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 sort of. The, the, the trickle down effect of, of the drug wars. It was just fascinating. And I, I thought it was just a very well written book and, and had very compelling characters. And I really, I really enjoyed it. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I closed it on, I think, the second or third day of vacation. And I thought, wow, I'm, I'm you know, when I close a book, and I think I'm going to miss these characters. Mm. I, I, know, I know I just read a good book.
0: Yeah, that's good. What are you reading right now? I know you said you can read a few books at a time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I usually read one fiction. I can only read one fiction book at a time. I can't keep multiple fiction books going in my head. It just doesn't work. But I I read multiple nonfiction at a time Mm -hmm. and then I always have a fiction going too because I feel like if I read nonfiction when I'm going to bed, it makes me like – I get worked up when I read nonfiction because I like to read political things and I like to read, you know, cultural commentary and – you know, if I'm reading a book about like the unfairness of the system towards you know, a particular group or if I'm reading a book about, you know, something happening politically before bed, I just get like worked up and annoyed and I don't right. like to go to bed annoyed. So I like to just read silly fiction um, before I go to sleep. So, uh, fiction wise right now, I'm reading, I'm reading a book. It's been around for a long time, uh, called, we need to talk about Kevin.
0: Yes, I have uh, that. I've not read it yet. It's
1: very powerful yeah. as a, as a father of sons. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a painful book. It's right. about, you know, it's about a woman, uh, a, it's written from the point of view of the narrator is a woman whose son has perpetrated a school shooting. Right. And, um, it is, it is very powerful because it really is about how, how do you reconcile that when you love someone so much and you right. raised them for when they were an infant and they've done something undeniably horrible, I had read a, a, a nonfiction book called "A Mother's Reckoning," which mm-hmm. was written by one Klebold, of the one of right? the parents, yeah, of of, uh, of the Columbine massacre uh, perpetrators. And it was a very powerful book. Because, Have you read
0: Columbine by yes. Dave Collins? Oh, That's like a, my, amazing, one of my favorite books.
1: Amazing! Book.
0: I'm obsessed yeah. with
1: Dave. Collin. It's a it's a fantastic book and it's oh, so well researched it's and so well, well written. written. And, and I found that school shooting fascinating, fascinating. because I, I I really do think i mean now unfortunately we we were in an era of, of there's another you know mass shooting you know every other other week it feels like but Columbine really represents you know something emotionally i think in our society and mm-hmm. and as a as a father to sons i I do find like the the I look at that age of a young man's life and, and, and uh, certainly women of course have their own struggles at that age too, but I am saying it as a, as a male and as a father of sons that I had a very unique worldview of having been a young man and then watching young men navigate that. Right. And, and I have to tell you like, you know, reading, we need to talk about Kevin, reading Columbine, reading a mother's reckoning. They were all very powerful because you, you do raise children and and then they become human right and you have to sort of accept that there are parts of them that are not something you put in them you know right. and, and and it's a right. how do you reconcile that when it's something that someone does that's just atrocious so that's yeah that's something i'm reading and i'm reading uh currently the incredibly controversial uh 12 rules for life by jordan peterson i don't know that so uh, jordan peterson is 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 an interesting character in, in, in contemporary culture because he's um, come under criticism as being alt right and as being oh. someone who is um, conservative in his perspective. But I, I heard him on a number of podcasts and I, I kind of found myself thinking this guy isn't really right wing at all. He's mm-hmm. actually kind of like a kind of nerdy and very, you know, he's like a social psychologist. and, uh-huh. uh, and and I think these some of the things he's saying are taken out of context, um, and and are are they when they're taken out of context they sound very alt right, but but they're not alt right. And I think, as someone who's pr- progressive and left leaning, I I tend to want to know who is actually right wing, and I want to know who is being mistakenly identified as right wing, and so. Um I started reading his book and, and and so far there's nothing in the book that would support the proposition that he's a right-wing person at is all. Is he
0: not he's not a self-identified right-wing no, person? No, not at all. He would actually oh. say
1: he's a, a progressive liberal and interesting. And, and he, I think he is a progressive liberal. I just think that he is he's he reminds me a lot of the people I studied at NYU under. And oh, and that is that they are. Very logical. Mm-hmm. And so they tend to say things like hypotheticals. Oh. That when taken out of context, those hypotheticals sound horrifying. Like, right. You know, it'd be like me saying, well, you know, people should have to get a license to have children because, you know, custody battles are so terrible and you should have to like go out and get a license. And and then people say like, oh, my God, he's he's suggesting that people should get a license to have children. And you're like, well, no, he's not suggesting that. He's saying that if you think it's dangerous for people to have children who aren't qualified, then you should theoretically have to get a license to have children. He's not saying that's the right approach. He's saying logically this leads to this, which leads to this. Right. I see. So I'm reading it. I like anytime someone says to me, you know, this book is very controversial or this book is – um, you know, very far left or very far right. I love reading it because mm-hmm. I just want to know, is it really like or is it being misidentified? Because I think we're, we are living in a a time where there are massive accusations flying from the left to the right and the right to the left about extremism. And while those fights are happening, I think actual extremism is happening yes. all over the place. Correct. And. I think we're so busy chasing these red herrings that that sometimes we're not looking at the real stuff that we should Mm -hmm, be looking at. So mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to read his book uh, to see if, in fact, uh, it was misplaced or if the. I'm not finished with it yet, so I can't say if if it's misplaced or not misplaced. So far, it's a good book. It's 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 an intelligent. It's it seems very obvious to me. Uh, It's a lot. It's rules for life, and there are things like you know, make your bed uh uh-huh. you know and uh, uh don't you know uh, uh, don't allow your children to behave in a way that makes you dislike them right and 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 it's amazing to me that that would ever be a controversial thought like hmm. that it's a good idea to you know treat yourself like a person you were in charge of caring for right that right. doesn't seem controversial to me but um, I think in these times, the fact that he's been on the New York Times bestseller list for you know hundreds of weeks now with hmm. his book, it's he's tapping into something. So interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. What's a book that you like to recommend to people?
1: So one of my favorite books, again obscure. I apologize.
0: No, it's great. I love when people get obscure. There's a book by William
1: Peter Blatty, who is the author of The Exorcist. Okay. He wrote a book called Legion. Okay. Which was sort of a sequel to The Exorcist, but it really isn't. And. Um, it's a fiction. It's a horror novel, but it is much, much more than that. It is. It is a spiritual commentary. It is about the, like the existential nature of existence. I. I. I don't know how else to describe it better. It. William Peter Blattery is an amazing writer. His. His humor, uh, dark kind of humor, uh, coming out of his characters' mouths is so sharp. He writes. He writes books like Aaron Sorkin writes dialogue on TV shows. Mm, okay. like it's just so sharp <laughs> that you go, okay, I wish people could speak that sharply and that intelligently. Um, but it, 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 it's a great book. And it's it's scary and smart and philosophical and moving. And so I, I recommend that book to people a lot. There's a book by Ken Wilber called Grace and Grit that I really <clears throat> like. Um, it's nonfiction. Ken Wilber, I don't know if you know him. He's a, a social psychologist. He wrote a lot about what he called the perennial philosophy, which is essentially – how can we look at all world religions and find within them nuggets that are the same? Got it. So he he wrote this spectrum kind of called The Perennial Philosophy where he talks about how um all religions are, are are saying similar things and and where are they in common like do they have a messianic figure do they believe in the redemptive power of forgiveness yeah. sure and he ties them all together it's, it's a fascinating thing because if you like like houston smith the world's religions or any other books about religion i find religion fascinating i find faith fascinating yeah. probably because i don't have one yeah <laughs> um so i find it fascinating that people have them have and that they die for them and they kill people for it so right. I'm, I'm fascinated by that and um but Grace and Grit is written by, uh, 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 you know, Ken Wilber, but it's not a book about religion. It's about um, he was in his late 30s and had never married because he had been this sort of wonder boy academically. Mm-hmm. I think he went to Harvard and he had a PhD and he's a brilliant guy, but he'd never fallen in love and never married. And he met this very unique, amazing, intelligent woman. Um, and they married fairly quickly and were very deeply in love and within a few years of getting married she contracted terminal breast cancer mm. and it's the story of her treatments and then her eventual passing and um, it's a book about losing someone that right. you it's that it's not fair that right. there's no nexus by which it is fair, that, that, that you just met them, that you were waiting your life for them, that you got them and now they're just gone and there's nothing you can do about it and there's no one to blame. Right. And how does someone who is a philosopher and who is, you know, studied religions and who, you know, how do you deal with loss? Right. And, and this woman um, who you kind of get to know through this book is this brave, intelligent, fierce, independent woman who faces her treatment and faces her her death incredibly bravely. Wow. Um, And so it's just a very moving book. It's the kind of book that I've never... I've recommended it to a lot of people, and all of them call me and go like, oh, fuck you. Like, how... Why didn't you tell me what this is about? I really got like like two in the morning phone calls, like, you know, of, of, of like, how dare you do this to me, you know? But... Um, anytime I recommended it to somebody, they say, yeah, it, like made me sob like a child, but it was just a beautiful book. And it was very affirming. And it, it you know, I was a hospice volunteer for many years. Oh, wow. And, and um, I think we're never more alive than when we're in the presence of death and yeah. when we're in the presence of people who are terminally ill. And I think that you know, it, we wake up every single day and the fact that we're not terminally ill and someone we love is not terminally ill should be celebrated every single day because when you go through the experience of having a terminally ill loved one, it's, it's, it's all-consuming. Mm-hmm. And so um, I like to recommend that book to people because I do like to bring people's consciousness back to the reality. I think we wouldn't be arguing over petty shit right. if we kept in our consciousness how short our lives are and how short the lives of the people we love are. And, yeah. and so I like to recommend that book to people.
0: That's a good reason yeah, to recommend, yeah. how do you read? Are you reading um physical books? Are you reading ebooks audiobooks
1: you know that's ch- i don 't really do a lot of audiobooks okay. i I do podcasts like crazy, yeah. but i don 't do audiobooks because um I feel like it 's just too long of a process. So, mm-hmm. like my audiobook is eight and a half hours of me mm-hmm. talking which right. is like, that's a lot of me. <laughs> that's like seven and a half hours more of me talking than my ex wife ever had to endure, probably in the entire scope of our marriage so <laughs> um, I, I, I think that's a lot. So I, I, I read physical books when I'm on vacation because I like mm-hmm. to bring a physical book and mm-hmm. I'll like leave it wherever I stayed, you know, they yeah. like libraries sometimes at hotels or resorts. Um, but lately, yeah, I've, I've been on the Kindle. My wife bought me a Kindle a couple of months ago and I was sort of resistant to the idea mm-hmm. of a Kindle. But now I'm so in because it's just so great to be able to just download a book and have it right there. And Ugh. I really do like it. I the physical space required to when you read as much as I read, mm-hmm. you end up with, you know, I had rooms full of books. Yeah. And and I still have a room full of books, but I, I I just got to the point, especially living in New York City where, you know, space is kind of a premium yeah. in an apartment and um I don't like to once I have a book, I don't like to get rid of it. Yeah. You know, if I loved it, yeah. I really like want to keep it keep there's that something totemistic totally, about it. Totally. So I, I like having uh the Kindle and I like having I have on my iPad I have a lot of books. So I, I'm I'm leaning more towards that now, but there's still something about a physical book that I really like. And I don't know that I'll ever do the audiobook thing in any real
0: way. Yeah. That's fair. I limit my audiobooks in length to about 6 or 7 hours. So mm-hmm. it's got to be a short book. Yeah. And even that takes me a long time. Yeah. I prefer to read personally, but
1: It's hard to keep the thread to I feel like when yeah. I'm listening to an audiobook yeah. of, of that duration.
0: But it's interesting cuz there are people who have a heart like just like if you're a visual or auditory mm-hmm. learner, there are people who feel like they miss a lot when they read and that they can digest it better listening, which I never yeah. had really thought about cuz yeah. I feel like when I'm listening I'm like doing other things and yeah. I'm really distracted. I find that. Absolutely.
1: Like that's what one of the things I like about podcasts is that I I do that while I'm driving. I do that while I'm on the subway. I do that while I'm working out. And and, and that feels – you know, it's very funny. There was a time in my life where I listened to like, you know, hip hop or Metallica while I was like lifting weights in the morning at the gym. And now – i 'm listening to podcasts right. I'm listening to like you yeah. know, the daily yeah. uh, you know i'm listening to <laughs> nPR and uh, and I laugh as I think well, it is like i 'm getting all pumped up while I listen to NPR um, although these days it, there's there's a lot there's to, a get, lot to get out yeah, yeah. A lot of aggression it 's probably more aggressive than Metallica <laughs> at this point in the news um, but yeah i, I don't i don 't know that i i 'll ever be one of those people that can really um, do a lot in audiobook, but audiobook is incredibly popular and, yeah. and my Apparently, the the audiobook version of my book has been uh, number one on Amazon's uh, audiobook uh, self help relationship space for I think 47 weeks.
0: That's amazing. Like that. That's so, so awesome.
1: I mean, I'm, th- I'm grateful for it. And, and it's, um, I had the experience the other day where someone heard my voice. Oh. And said, Are you Jim Saxton? And I said, <laughs> Yeah. And they said, oh, I recognized your voice. I've been listening to you.
0: That's so funny. And I thought
1: that was absolutely hilarious.
0: Do you read a lot of relationship books? I
1: don't. No. Ever. I don't. I don't ever. I, I I wrote one before I'd ever read one. Amazing. I mean, I've I've since read a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 but I, I never did before. I, I I just didn't um I read books. Here's what I'll say: I'll re, I read books about self-development. Sure. And I think those end up being relationship yeah. books. Like one of my favorite books is a book called The Way of the Superior Man mm-hmm. Um by David uh, Dida. And that's a book for men about. Manhood, okay, and I found that book to be incredibly helpful to me as a man. So it's a relationship book because a lot of it is about, you know, if you're a heterosexual man in a relationship with a heterosexual woman, you know, what are some things you can do to be better, right? You know, and and it was a it was it was a great book in the sense that I, I I consider myself a feminist and I was raised feminist and so reconciling that with my status as a heterosexual male is not always the easiest thing in the world. Right. Because of gender roles and because of gender stereotypes in relationships and because of, you know, expectations of relationships and and, and how that plays into certain gender tropes. And so that book, The Way the Superior Man, was recommended to me by a yoga teacher, a male yoga teacher (laughs) of mine from many years ago, who I knew was a very progressive and thoughtful man. Um, and he uh, recommended it to me, and I read it, and I I found it was really, really good. But it wasn't a relationship book. It was a self-improvement book. But, you know, I think that that's something we have to recognize, is that if you read a book and it makes you relate to yourself better, that's a relationship book. Sure, know, Because it's improving you, and you're improving the relationship, and you're improving yourself. Because you're you're part of a relationship. Exactly.
0: What about um, any genres that you avoid or that you really love? But I feel like you've talked about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. I hate historical fiction. Okay. I mean, hate's a strong word, but yeah. I think it applies. Okay. I, I don't like historical fiction. Okay. I, I, it just does nothing for me. you
0: just rather read the history.
1: Yeah, I'd rather read the history or I'd rather read fiction. Right. But like historical fiction just seems very weird to me. I'm like, with you. When you take characters that were actual people. Yes. And put them into situations that weren't something that actually happened. I get it. But it's just to me that that holds no appeal whatsoever. Yeah. Like I'd rather read about the reality of this person right. and I'd rather, or I'd rather read an interesting story. Right. But I, but to, when you kind of combine those two things, it, it just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> um, books I like, I mean, I like, I like anything funny. I like anything smart. I like, you know, I like horror very much. I Ooh. like horror novels that have some religious tinge to them because okay. I do find um, religious, you know, topics interesting, but I mean the list of books, the types of books I love is very it's like the list of music I love. Right. It, it, it's, long it's so and diverse, diverse and so bizarre <laughs> and it goes from like mob deep to, you know, Garth Brooks. Right. So you just look at it and go, There's nothing no rhyme there's or no thread to this. here." Yeah. If you put my iPad if you put my iPad on shuffle, like my the music selections yeah. in my Apple music on Shuffle, you, you better not have a speaker nearby. Yeah. Because you're it's you're getting in for a weird ride. Yes, yeah. that's
0: exactly how my music is. Yeah. I teach spin as my day job. Oh, okay. So I have like Ranging from like yeah. Nora Jones to like Diplo, yeah. It's like,
1: well, I tell you, I've I've recently discovered Spin. Oh, and and I'd never done it before. And I just got into it maybe a few months ago okay. because I wanted to do something a little different okay. for cardio. I was getting tired of being on the elliptical or okay. like running on a treadmill and staring at things. And I'm, I'm middle-aged, so I am you know I have to be conscious <laughs> about if I walk past a pizza shop, my right. pants are suddenly tight. Right. Um, whereas my sons can eat entire pizzas <laughs> and still have an eight-pack and never do a sit- setup in their lives. Um, <laughs> but the truth is, is that being in spin class, I've been forced to – Hear all of this, like techno, mm-hmm. like Ariana Grande, mm-hmm. like all things I would never, never have listened, listened to. to, and I find myself now walking around, and I'm like humming, oh, "I'm so into you." <laughs> like, oh my god! Like you're you're humming Ariana Grande, but yeah, but I listened to it all morning, you know. So it's I. I, I heard something the other day. It was like Calvin Harris song, and I, I I really liked it. And I thought to myself, "What has happened to you?" Like I used to go to <laughs> punk shows when I was a teenager, right. and you know, I, I saw Rage Against the Machine, you know, at CMJ Music Festival in the early '90s, and here I am humming Calvin Harris as I walk around. So it's
0: okay. There's room think, for all the things. I think there is. There There's is. room for all things. Okay, we're we we'll probably have to get to the end soon. Sure. Even though I want to hear all your answers, and sure. I'm very sad. Are there any books? that you're embarrassed that you've not read yet?
1: That I've not read. Yeah. I never read my sister's whole book yet. Oh, Which is horrible. The
0: book that you hate. It's horrible. That's it's ho- you hated I'm a it terrible
1: much. person for not <laughs> having because you know, I want to be a supportive brother and I love right. her so much, but I just I I read the first three chapters and it was like like I read the first three chapters of Harry Potter and I was like, I can't do I this. Can't do I'm do sorry. This it is a children's book and I can't do it. And not to be listen, I know some people love those books. It just for me, it just doesn't work. Yeah. I just don't like it. <laughs> so I I read the first few chapters of my sister's book, and then I just said, I I can't do this, you know. So I've I've managed to kind of skim it, you know, but I, I, I just can't get through it. Right. So I'm embarrassed about that because I, I want to be a good brother, but <laughs> I just can't force myself to read about dragons. And um, I never read The Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. Oh, okay. And I feel like that's a book that like, I would be ashamed that I haven't read it because it's one mm. of those things that people say to you like, oh, well, like Walt Whitman says in the Leaves of Grass. And I go, oh, oh man, I didn't even read that. You know, I feel like I should have read it in school or I should have. You're probably fine. I've been given, <laughs> I've been gifted like two or three copies of that book oh, in really? my life. I, I, maybe it's like, a, like like people give that book to white men when they graduate from schools. But I I, I, it's a weird thing. I've been given that book so many times and I just, I've never read it.
0: People do not give that book to me. They
1: don't. No, okay. I'm, All right. No. I'm... Yeah, I have three copies if you no, want.
0: Thank you. It feels like something I feel great about not having him yeah, read. I feel uh, I've fine never about read that. It. I don't know
1: anything. I don't know. I, it might be amazing. I have no idea.
0: Well, let me know if you find out it's good. I
1: will. What I will. about
0: if you were gonna assign a book in high school? What would you, what's a book you might assign to high school?
1: I would assign there's a book by Neil Postman, who was one of my professors in graduate school, who's an amazing, prolific writer. He wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death: Public Discourse in the Age of Television. And he also wrote a book called Conscientious Objections. That's a collection of of short essays about culture and technology that for me were life-changing in terms of when I read, I went to study in the program I studied in because I picked Mm. up that book and I found it so uh, intelligent and so just viscerally, you know, it it was like the matrix. Mm -hmm. Like it was this like, Oh my God, someone just opened my eyes Mm -hmm. to a way of viewing our society. So I would say Neil Postman's books. I would definitely recommend. Um, I would love to have high school students read. But there are a lot of books that that um that I would love to to force a young person to read. Right. But it's usually a function of the fact that it was something that I learned from later in life. And so I I, I don't know if part of that's not getting to that book was part of the journey. Right. So I don't know that I'd impose it. But those are some books. Those are two books that I think would be really really great for a young person to have.
0: That's interesting. Are there books that have influenced your professional career now, like lawyery books.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I is that I, um, word lawyery. Yeah, lawyery. That's the <laughs> genre actually. It's the lawyery book. Um yeah, I would say um a book I read fairly often and reread. And it's gonna sound silly, but is a book called The Rainmaker by Jonathan okay. Grisham. Yeah. And um, John Grisham writes a lot of good lawyer books. Was that and, a movie too? It was a movie yeah. too with Matt Damon. That's right. Um and the movie was decent. Okay. The book is better. Okay. Um as is often the case, yes. right? And but the book is very inspirational and, and it, 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 it's a book I reread when I feel like I need to remember why I'm a lawyer. Mm. It's a book about a guy right out of law school who ends up taking on a case where his adversary is like a gigantic law firm mm. representing a gigantic insurance company. And he's representing a poor young man who's dying of cancer. and it's everything that made me want to be a lawyer i see you know it's it's the idea that that this is going to be a level playing field and i'm going to come in and with my brain Mm -hmm. i'm going to beat you wow i'm going to win i'm going to i'm not going to let goliath beat david i'm going to get in there with just what's in my head i don't have to punch you i don't have to threaten you i'm going to go in and be smarter than you and i'm going to let the truth come out and it's that kind of book and and Doing what I do for a living, having books that remind me mm-hmm. that that's really what we're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. here is is a wonderful thing to have. Um, there's also a book uh, called The Abuse of Innocence, which um, is by Paul Eberly, I think. Um, and that's a book about the McMartin preschool trials. I don't, I don't know that. The McMartin preschool case was, uh, it was in the 80s. It was um, essentially one of those like witch hunt kind of situations mm-hmm. where there was this belief that this preschool was molesting children. Oh, and uh, they ended up arresting a family this mcmartin family um and after i think 6 or 7 years and tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money they came to the realization that that nothing happened oh i happened.
0: do know cuz they were asking the kids yeah. and the kids yeah. and were they like were yeah using suggestive
1: interviewing right ideas. and they were like we're three and it's basically <laughs> a book about how the system can run out of control when people become hysterical and mm-hmm. stop thinking rationally and logically and how the legal system is the thing that can undo that because it forces everyone to slow down and defend their position. I see. And and you have to. It doesn't matter what you know; it matters what you can prove. What you
0: can prove, right? And
1: and so I love stories like that. I love anything that that you know. That's why I like courtroom drama of right. any kind in, in in an actual courtroom or, or reading about it in a book. Is that I, I like that the truth is the is the is the thing you're pursuing. Right.
0: Have you read Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson? Yes. Yes. That's my favorite lawyer book. Excellent. That's actually maybe my, one of my favorite books. Excellent period. Book. Yeah. He, like he made me want to be a lawyer, even though yeah. I don't actually want to be a lawyer.
1: It's a very. <laughs> I, I coach um, a high school mock trial team, uh-huh. and I do it every year. And it, it, it's. Um, I don't have the time for it, but it's something that I sort of force myself to make the time for, because there is something so lovely about seeing. Young people mm-hmm. so excited about what I do for a living. Yeah. <laughs> like to look at you and go, you get to go in a courtroom and yeah. you know, like you get to stand there and like argue and make an opening statement. And, right, and it reminds you, like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty. That cool. is cool. Like, it's a kind of cool. Yeah, day, you know, it's yeah. like when you watch Law and Order, you're like, oh, I do that every day. that's yeah. pretty cool. And so, I I uh, I do think that there is something too that when you first get out of law school, you know, when you when you're going to be an aspiring trial lawyer, you have that sense of oh my god, I'm going to get to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, and and. After doing it for 20 years, you start to just go, oh, well, man, that's what I do. It's my job, you know. But I, I, I like to read The Rainmaker. I like to read, you know, law books. I like to read John Grisham novels because I do like to be reminded of the fact that I'm, I'm blessed to do what I do for a living.
0: Yeah. Okay, so here's my last question. It's my favorite one. It's from the New York Times Book Review. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? I,
1: I'm not entirely certain he knows how to read. So This is I don't, the most common There's answer. a lot of evidence to the contrary. <laughs> I know that. Um, and, 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 I mean, is the Constitution considered a book? Would, would that be a fair? I don't know if the Constitution is considered a book. so I'll, I'll I mean, a,
0: like, he needs to read that. So here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to
1: throw some precepts. I'm going to take, logically, I'm going to take what you're asking me. Okay. I'm going to say there have to be some conditions set here. Okay. So we have to, A, establish that he knows how to read. Okay. B... It would have to be that I recommend this book to him that he would actually read it and that he would be capable of understanding it. Okay. All of which are presuppositions that I think have no place whatsoever in this. You know, like if you said to me, like, I could have been on here four years ago. Right. And I would have, I mean, Barack Obama, there's like 50 books that have been like, oh, my God, he should yes. read this or yes. he should read that. And, yes. and, and,
0: and there would be no conditions to there it. There would be no
1: conditions to right. it because he's he's 10 times smarter than me. And I loved having a president who was way smarter than me. Yes. I love the security that came with that. I want I want the most like policy wonk, geeky president ever, you know, right. like I want her to have like – you know, been an economist. Right. You, know? you want Hillary it's, Clinton? Um, yeah, I want. I, no, she even she has too much personality. I want someone oh. who just like got shoved in lockers. You their want whole the like life. Neil deGrasse
0: Tyson of yeah, economy? Of, of, of
1: exactly. I just want someone who just has like almost no charisma. Sure. But who's just really like knows more about everything: right. climate change, economy. Right. You know, just they, they, you could find. they could hand them a map. Yeah. And say, "Where's Somalia?" And they, "Here yeah. it is." You yeah. Know? Whereas I feel like I could say to Donald. Trump like where's Ohio and he would just I don't know I'd you don't could worry. probably say he'd where's America and yeah, he would and be he would like not find it no because he'd know the shape I feel like he'd know the shape I hope you know? I mean maybe I don't know <laughs> but if if I had to pick a book that any president should read um, there's a book um, that it was made a film too it's called and the band played on yes Randy Schultz yeah Randy Schultz yeah and the band played on by Randy Schultz I, I think that's that's one of those books that book made me furious mm. it is. And it's, I think, something a president would need to read because it's about how a massive system failure can happen with the best of intentions right. if you just allow fear and prejudice to take over. Sure. And and as someone who was a hospice volunteer during the height of the AIDS crisis, Ooh. I got to see, and it was male and was young, which were were two things that most hospice volunteers weren't. were not. Um, I got assigned a, almost all of my clients when i was a hospice volunteer were were young men dying of aids Mm. and when you read and the band played on when you read the history of the you know aids pandemic you're just stunned at how we we could have done so much more so much sooner and we Mm -hmm. were killing and as someone who now has a 19 year old and a 21 year old son you know that just to think that there are these these young men who just died and they didn't have to and right. they died because we were prejudiced and they died because we were homophobic and they died because politicians wanted to be you know expedient and 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 they wanted to just push these ideas aside and as long as they say well you know it's just it's just this group that's dying right. let's just put it aside so i feel like any president should read that book because it mm-hmm. it, it would be a, a lesson in how the decisions you make actually make a difference you know if reagan had done more we wouldn't be in the position we're in when it comes to AIDS, and so and it, would, it became a worldwide crisis, and it right. became something that wasn't just killing gay men. It became something that was killing you know everyone all over the world. So um, I, I, I think that's a great great book about that, and it's also a, you know an incredibly well written book.
0: Mm-hmm. We're going to wrap up for today. We're going to be back next week talking about Good and Mad, which is by Rebecca Traister. And I'm very excited to talk feminism and rage and all that, politics. Thank you so much for being here, Jim. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to James Sexton for being our guest. Make sure you get yourself a copy of If You're in My Office, It's Already Too Late from your favorite bookseller. I'd also like to thank Nicole Dewey for setting up the interview as well as the people at Henry Holt for my copy of James's book. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at the Pod on Instagram and at the Pod underscore on Twitter and check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to the show like Perks and The Book Club and more, go to patreon.com slash Stacks, or for one-time contributions, go to paypal.me slash thestackspod. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajus. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the stacks.